Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're joining us, we're glad you're here with us this morning at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church. And we're just saying, like, one of the things we want to reflect on and feel this morning is that there truly is nothing better than God. When we come and worship, we get the chance to, to sing that and to let that truth pour out of our heart. And so that's my hope this morning for each of us, that we would feel that. That would be hollow word, but we would feel that there is truly nothing better than God as we worship together. With that in mind, let's continue worshiping. If you're not standing, we um, just welcome you to stand this morning. This song is God with us. I just love the the opening line to it for something as we're coming into church. And the very opening line says, Oh, you've come to bring peace, to be loved, to be near to us. You've come. You're in this place. So we're going to open up our worship this morning with this song.
Again, it's good to be gathered with you this morning if you're here joining us. And one thing I'm kind of make note of this morning at the end of our service, we will take communion together. So on your way in, there were trays with these little cups in them. If you miss those on your way in, you can speak out one point and grab um, one out of the back. But we will at the end of the service together take communion together. So I just encourage you to have, have one of these. The past week, like we, the nation celebrated Veterans Day, and this Sunday in the church in the United Kingdom, it's Remembrance Sunday. They kind of take time to remember just the service of those who fought in the armed services. So I just want to acknowledge those of you who are here who have fought in our armed services. We we thank you um, for your for your service. Um, and another note of thanks, like yesterday, many of you women gathered for a baby shower for us and for Vanessa and our our upcoming child, and so we're just personally like overwhelmed and thankful by your generosity to us. And so I to say personally, each of you, thank you for for all you did um, for us in that. Um, so at the at the church, we are we really want to be about three things. Right? We want to be about reaching people with the gospel, which we think happens best as we are actively engaged with our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends. And then we want to grow to be like Christ and we want to serve others. And so one of the ways we have a chance to invite people into growing coming up is we have a child dedication uh, next Sunday on the 21st. And so if you have a child who hasn't been dedicated and you want to be a part of that, I invite you to reach out to me in... Um, by email or contact the church office, we can make that happen. Um, a chance to a way to serve um, is kind of during COVID, kind of our our welcome and our kind of greeting ministry kind of took a back seat as we kind of walked through like what that looks like for during COVID. But we're trying to re um, restart that, and so the Wolkies have graciously volunteered to kind of head that up. And so I'm going to invite them to come up and share a little bit about what they have going on and what their kind of vision for that is. Well, thank you and welcome to our church. Uh, my name is Dale Wolke. This is my wife, Janelle. Uh, we currently uh, serve on the safety ministry and there is another opportunity that Pastor mentioned this morning uh, that is uh, going to be available to welcome people as they enter our church. And Janelle has uh, more to say about that. Hello, everyone. Members and non-members, we need your help welcoming and assisting people on Sunday morning. Just 20 minutes of your time. Can you smile and say hello? Visit our table downstairs after the service today. We have more information regarding the welcome ministry. 
or you can pick up a brochure in the lobby. Thank you in advance for your help. We, we really do desire to be a place where people can come, like walk in the door for the first time and feel at home and feel welcome. And so kind of that ministry that they're heading up is a vital way. I think we can make that happen. So if you're interested in serving with them, I'd encourage you to contact, reach out to them. With that in mind, we're going to um, continue our worship here in a minute. But one of the ways we worship, like we want to think of all of life and all that we do as an act of worship, not just singing, but all that takes place here and in our lives. And so one of the ways we do that is through giving of tithes and offerings. So if you, you want to give, we have two boxes on the back wall. You can drop your, your gifts in, or you can give online on our website, tlefc.org slash give. It's a way to give back to God what He has so graciously given to us. Let's let's pray together as we continue our time of worship. Father, we we come and we we thank you for your goodness to us, your love for us. We just pray that as we continue singing this morning, as we continue gathering together as your people in this place, that our minds would be fixed on you, that we would be drawn more deeply in love with you, that we would be amazed all the more by what a great God you are, what a great Savior Jesus is. God, would you speak in each of our hearts this morning to draw us closer to yourself and conform us more and more into the image of your Son. Yeah, with other worries, with other cares fade away, and we just be transfixed by you this morning. Yeah, for people in our congregation, people in our families who are walking through hard times right now, we pray that you would be with them, that you would give them comfort and a undeniably real sense of your presence with them. God, would you just would you be honored by all that takes place here this morning as we go out from here into the mission field you have given us. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand again and <clears throat> worship with us. Try to clear the frog out of my throat here. <clears throat> How many of you are excited about the snow this morning? Do we have any snow people? How many do not want snow? Okay, so wherever we're at this morning with snow, liking it or not, it doesn't matter what's going on outside here in this place, we are going to worship and we're going to raise a hallelujah this morning.
we thank you that as we just sang that you are the helper of our helpless souls and that you in your strength can carry us through anything by your grace. We are not capable in our own power, but you in your grace and your love for us carry us through it all. We praise you for that. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One thing I forgot to mention during announcements a minute ago, like along with communion, uh, we have, during our communion services we take a benevolence offering at the end of the service. So that's just kind of a dedicated offering to help meet needs in the community. And so along with regular tithes and offerings that can go in the boxes in the back, there will be someone at the back door holding a plate this morning at General Any gifts and offerings that go in the plate will be dedicated for benevolence for meeting needs in our community. Just keep that in mind. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 11 this morning, starting in verse 14. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. If you need one, there should be one in the seat in front of you. The verses will also be on the screen. But every, every once in a while, I like have this moment that I just like kind of stop short, and I'm just struck by how much I take for granted living in our modern world. Like the other day, for I don't know why, like I had this sudden wonderment, like how far away is Neptune? I don't know why, but it just came in my head. Like and like, and like thirty seconds of tapping on my phone, and like I knew the answer. Like, Neptune was discovered in 1846, right? which means, like, for the vast majority of human history, no one even knew Neptune existed. Right? And now, like, I can know how far away it is in, like, 20 seconds through a little rectangle in my pocket. Like, that's weird. Right? Like, I had another moment, like, walking around the grocery store the other day. I was just, like, struck by what a marvel, like modern grocery stores are. Like any day of the year, I can walk into Triggs, I can buy a banana that was grown in Central America for like 15 cents. Like it's snowing outside and I can go buy a fruit that grows in tropical climates for like a nickel any day of the year. Like that's insane, right? And And those bananas are right next to like avocados that are grown in Mexico and pineapples that are grown in Costa Rica and grapes that are grown in Chile. And like, they're all just there all the time. Like, that doesn't even count like all the produce that is grown closer to home and like all the dry goods that are on our shelves. According to one article I read, the modern grocery store carries on average 30,000 products. And of those products, 92% are in stock at any given time. And it's incredibly important to these grocery stores that those products stay in stock. Because according to some research, 70% of customers who go to a grocery store and find an item out of stock three times will change grocery stores. Like, we like, we get, we take, take, take things for granted. Like, oh, how dare they be out of whatever, like, I'm going to go change grocery stores. Like, like, just imagine, like, someone from the 1700s time travels and shows up, and, like, you're trying to explain to them what an outrage it is that your grocery store is 
out of Skippy, so you had to buy Jif. <laughs> like, that's like flabbergasting. Or like, I know, like, I know it's super easy right, to bash internet providers. Again, their customer service can be downright terrible. I'm like, I get it mad at anyone, and my internet is slow. But just imagine trying to explain to like someone even 20 years ago, like just how annoying it is that your giant flat-screen TV can't play any movie your heart desires at any given time because your internet's not quite fast enough. Like the fact that you can do that, it's amazing. But we just take it, take it for granted, and we get upset at stuff. And the fact of the matter is, like, if anything becomes common and normal, like we start to take it for granted. And the same thing happens as we read about Jesus' miracles in the gospel. Like, like, oh yeah, like there was this one time, there were like 5,000 people around, and the only food they had was like a couple loaves of bread and a few fish, and Jesus fed them all. Right? Or, like, or like, here's this guy who's like, an outcast and a leper, and like his life is terrible, and Jesus heals him. Like, or here's a guy who's been dead for three days, and Jesus speaks, and he's raised from the dead. Like, ho hum. Like, we can read these things and like totally take them for granted, and not be amazed by how incredible they truly are. Like, we're in Luke chapter 11, and up to this point in Luke, there've been 15 distinct specific miracles in the book of Luke. That doesn't even count all the times Luke says something like, Jesus cured many who had diseases. Fifteen distinct miracles. And in today's passage, we hear about another miracle. But Luke seems to understand our propensity to take things for granted. So it doesn't spend much time actually talking about the miracle itself. And instead, his focus is on not the miracle, but on how people react to the miracle. And so this is one of the shortest miracle stories in the whole Bible. It's Luke chapter 11, verse 14. It says this, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left the man who had been mute, the man who, met, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. Like, that's it. That's all Jesus tells us about the miracle. Like, if I had done this, like, it would be like far and away the most interesting and important thing I ever did. Like, no one's going to write a story about my life, but if they did and I did that, it would be like 95% of the book would be about that event. Right? But Jesus, he gets one verse in his life story about how he did that. I said, like, like, it's just, that is... It's testament to the power of Jesus. Right? That he can have these unfathomable displays of power and they seem almost routine. That they merit 12 words on a page. It's such as the incredible power of Jesus that he performs the miracles and we take them for granted. And the fact that Luke only spends this one verse on the miracle itself tells us like, a lot about Luke's purpose in recording this event. Like Luke here is not, like his goal is not to convince you that Jesus can perform miracles. Like, he just like takes that as a given fact. Like even Jesus' opponents that we'll see take that as a given fact. Like yeah, Jesus can perform miracles. That's so the question Luke is addressing. It's not 
can Jesus perform miracles, but it's how Jesus is performing these miracles, these miracles, and therefore, how should I respond to Jesus performing miracles? If the power that Jesus uses to perform the miracles informs how I should respond to those miracles. As we read the rest of the passage, we're going to see different groups of people respond to Jesus in different ways based on how they think he performed this miracle. So with that in mind, let's read the rest of this passage and we'll, just, we'll see how Luke describes the different responses to Jesus' power. They pick up the story in verse 15. He just healed the man who was mute. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through Arab places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and it takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So as we said, like this passage is all about three different ways that people respond to Jesus' displays of power, like Jesus' miracles. And the first way we see some people respond is with antagonism. So some people see Jesus cast out this demon. They see this man who had been unable to speak, suddenly able to speak, and their response is, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is casting out demons. Beelzebub literally means Lord of the Flies, but it was a way in that culture of referring to Satan. So basically, like some of these people are saying, like Jesus is using Satan's power to cast out Satan's minions. And if that seems super illogical, you're right. Like why would Satan give Jesus power to undo the work that his demon has done to turn this man mute? Like, Satan's whole goal right, is, is to do harm and to break relationship between God and men. And that's happening very effectively in this mute man's life. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that this passage takes place right after Jesus taught on prayer. 
Like prayer for the people of Israel back then was a, was a much more verbal affair than it is for us. Like we're often content to kind of pray in our heads. But for the people of Israel, like prayer was usually an out loud spoken thing. That's why when Jesus is telling his disciples, teaching his disciples to pray, he says, when you pray, say our Father. Right? Not, not think our Father. That's why he tells people, like, when they pray, they should pray in private, they should go in their room, and they should shut the door. Watch at the door, so people don't hear you when you're praying. And you pray out loud. And like the last verse in Jesus' teaching on prayer, the verse right before what we're reading today, Jesus says this, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? A verbal asking. And then immediately, in the next verse, here's the man who can't ask. At least not out loud. Luke wants us to see how tragic it is for this man that he can't speak. How it's affecting not only his social life with his peers, but also his relationship with God. It isolates him, yes, from other people, but it also isolates him from God. And so the demon who is making this man mute is doing a great job achieving Satan's goal. It's like, why would Satan give Jesus the power to cast out this demon? He wouldn't. Like, it makes no sense. And Jesus points that out when he says, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. A house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? And Abraham Lincoln famously quoted that line from Jesus when he's talking about the end of slavery and pending civil war when he said, A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do, expect the, I, do not, I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. And like, I think because of that speech, this statement from Jesus that kind of entered into our kind of cultural vocabulary and our cultural thinking more than maybe otherwise would have, and it got kind of a more importance than we otherwise would give it. Like, I feel like, at least in my perception, like people act like Jesus saying a house divided against itself will not fall with some like, deep insight in the geopolitics that Lincoln picked up on. But I, I don't think Jesus is trying to make some profound point here. In fact, I think he's doing the opposite. Like, I think he's making a painfully obvious point to show how irrational this thinking is. Like Jesus, right? because he's Jesus, he can't just come out and say, like, you're all a bunch of dummies if you think Satan gave me this power. He can't say that, because he's Jesus. That's not a very Messiah-y thing to say. Right? And so instead, he says, basically, like, you know how it's painfully obvious that a house divided against itself can't stand? Well, it should be equally obvious that I don't cast out Satan's minions with Satan's power. Like, it should be obvious. It doesn't make any sense. But that's the effect sin has. Like, like 
sin makes us entirely illogical sometimes. It's never like the super rational side of our brain that leads us into sin. It's like, in fact, it's often the opposite. Like, I, I, I can struggle sometimes with like, desires to like, overeat and gluttony and things like that. And so like, I can look at a plate of cookies in front of me. Like, I can give myself a thousand rational arguments for why I shouldn't eat those cookies. Like, you're going to feel bloated and sick afterward. That the enjoyment will be super fleeting, and then you're going to feel guilty moments later. It's bad for your health. If you eat these now, it's only going to make it harder to say no the next time. You don't even like that kind of cookie that much. But in the moment, like, none of that matters. Like, like all those things can be true, and I can say them to myself over and over in my mind. And ten minutes later, the whole plate's gone. Like, that's how sin works. It's entirely irrational. It drives us to do irrational things. It doesn't matter the evidence. It doesn't matter how rational the evidence for Jesus is. Like in, our, in our own strength, we'll never overcome the corrupting influence of sin. And for people in that day who witnessed Jesus' power... The way their sin caused them to reject Jesus was by ascribing Jesus' power to Satan. But in our day, antagonism often looks a little bit different. In our day, the the more common way that people are antagonistic to Jesus is by denying he has any power whatsoever. Instead of saying, you know, Jesus performs miracles by Satan's power. You're far more likely to hear stuff like Christopher Hitchens says when he says, those of us who write and study history are accustomed to its approximations and ambiguities. That is why we do not take literally the tenth-hand report of frightened and illiterate peasants who claim to have seen miracles or to have had encounters with messiahs and prophets and redeemers who were like them mere humans. Or Richard Dawkins says, any belief in miracles is flat contradictory not just to the facts of science, but to the spirit of science. The virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, even the Old Testament miracles are all freely used religious propaganda that are very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. Like that. Like that's the new breed of antagonism towards Jesus. They just, just deny right, that miracles are even possible. Claim that there is no supernatural power. And claim that anyone who believes in those things is a frightened, anti-science, unsophisticated peasant. That's what antagonism towards Jesus looks like in our day, often. And that didn't work in Jesus' day because like, even Jesus' opponents saw his miracles firsthand. They couldn't out and out deny them. So they blamed Satan instead. But in today's world, opponents of Jesus just deny that Jesus has any superpower, supernatural power whatsoever. And they claim like those people, like, like Luke, like, who recorded those stories were just tenth-hand reports of frightened peasants. Even though Luke, in the very beginning of his gospel, goes all the way to tell us that he carefully undertook to get first-hand accounts of what he's writing about. 
He went out of his way to track down eyewitnesses to what they had seen. Charles Baudelaire, the French writer, I don't know the name, but he's the original source of a quote made famous in the movie, The Usual Suspects, which is, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Because there's so much truth in that statement. Like this idea that the physical, natural world is all there is. And that anyone who believes anything supernatural or miraculous is intellectually backward. It's one of the most pernicious attacks on our faith in our day. Again, if you're out in the world and you're engaging with non-Christian friends and neighbors, which we all should be doing, like you're bound to encounter people who believe things like this, that the natural world is all there is, that there is no supernatural. And so as, as you have those conversations, I just want you to be encouraged this morning that believing Jesus performed miracles doesn't mean checking your intelligence at the door. This idea that, the idea that Jesus performed miracles and science can indeed coexist. Right? Certain claims that certain scientists make may not be able to co- coexist with Christian belief. Right? But you can faithfully do science and believe the claims of Orthodox Christianity. And like, to me, right, the claim like, that life happened like utterly by chance, to emerge out of some primordial soup, which is a process our brightest mind can't recreate in a lab, like, that's more miraculous than anything Jesus does. And yet, that's scientific orthodoxy. Like, I don't know how you explain, right, why, why all the disciples would submit themselves to martyrdom if they knew Jesus didn't actually do the things he was claiming. Like the greatest miracle the Bible claims, right? The resurrection of Jesus. It's the bedrock of our faith. If the resurrection isn't true, then Christianity is invalid. And yet there were opponents all over the place right after the resurrection who wanted nothing more than to invalidate Christianity. And all they had to do was produce the bones. And they couldn't do it. If there's good logical reasons for believing in the claims of the Bible. It doesn't mean checking your intellectualism at the door. Like, I'm not a genius. Like, I'm not an intellectual giant, but like, I've tried faithfully and honestly to weigh the evidence for naturalism against the claims of Christianity. Like, for me, like, I find the claims of Christianity more intellectually satisfying. Say nothing of spiritually satisfying. We don't have time to get into all the claims and all the evidence that I find compelling this morning. But if you're here or you're watching online, I just want you to know that like, if you're having doubts, you're struggling with that, like, I'd love to have that conversation with you. It's like, let's talk about why it makes sense to believe some of these things actually happened. If you, if you don't if you don't believe in those things, like I'd love to have that conversation. Like not to not to argue and not to not to fight, but just have a genuine, healthy conversation. And if you're here this morning or you have 
someone in your life who you're having these kind of conversations with and you feel lost or trapped, like, I would love to help you, give you resources, and help you know how to have those conversations and give you information to help you have those conversations if you're curious for yourself or to help you have conversations with other people. Or like maybe you're here and you're wrestling with doubt yourself. Like you, you hear some of these antagonistic claims against Christianity and you, you don't know how to refute them. You, you feel yourself kind of compelled by them. That's you this morning. It's not you to be encouraged that there really are good reasons for believing that Christianity is true and that Jesus really performed the miracles that he says he did. And despite the antagonistic tones some people take, they could true and there's good reasons to believe it. Right, so one, one response to Jesus of power we see here is antagonism. Right? Another response we see is just kind of more skepticism. Verse 16 tells us, but right after, the, after he heals the man who me, verse 16 says, others tested Jesus by asking for a sign from heaven. Which, like, what? Like, like the dude couldn't talk. Jesus showed up. Now we can talk. Like, what sign from heaven do you want? Like, if that's not, if that's not a sign from heaven, what is like there's, this, there's this natural kind of disposition people have. Even when like, there are seemingly obvious signs of God at work to be skeptical. Like, to have a natural disposition towards skepticism. It can be really easy for us sitting here to like, think and judge those people and think like, oh, if I were there, if I was in that crowd, like, I would totally have seen Jesus perform that miracle, and I would have known for sure it was God, and I would have believed. I feel like, what do you have? Like, I would argue that without the Spirit of God at work in your life to reveal to you that Jesus genuinely was from God, you would have been just as inclined towards skepticism. And that, and that skepticism is hard one. But there is no end right, to hoaxes and scams in the world that teach us to be skeptical. And we, we all have stories, probably, of people we know, people in our lives, who, like this man, seem radically changed by the power of God. But we've also seen many of those people probably fall back into their old ways time and time again. And the people of this time were no different. They had all kinds of reasons to be skeptical. If they had seen people who claimed to have power from heaven before, and those people had been proven to be charlatans. Right? Like they can think, like, maybe, maybe this man like, healed himself. Right? Or maybe the, the demon was making this man mute, just decided to leave the man alone for a while. Like, how can they know or if this is a genuine miracle or some kind of scam. Jesus answers that question, I think, in verse, starting in verse 24 when he says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, and so notice there he says, when it comes out of a person, not it was cast out, but just when it comes out of the person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. 
when it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and it takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. And like, look, if you had made a list of the passages in Luke that I'd rather not address, like this one would be pretty high on the list. Like, there's a lot of questions in here about demons and spiritual warfare that like, I just don't necessarily feel equipped to answer. I don't have fully satisfying answers in my own mind. But I think the big point, the big picture point here, what really mattered seems to be that like the way you can tell if a person's transformation is real is by looking at the long-term results. We're all pretty good at cleaning up our act and putting our lives together for short periods of time. We can, to use Jesus' words here, like, sweep the house and put things in order for a while. We can overcome struggles we've had in the past by self-effort for a period of time. Like, I was, I was in Louisville last weekend, and, like, first of all, it was, like, 70 degrees on Sunday, and now I'm here, and it's... But anyway, I was, in Barnes, I was in Louisville, right? And so I went into Barnes & Noble. I was there. As you walk into Barnes & Noble, there's the big, like, bestseller section with, like, bestseller fiction books here and bestseller nonfiction books here. So I was, like, kind of looking over that, the nonfiction bestseller section. I was just, like, struck by how many of the books in that section are, like, self-help books. According to one study I read, like, 19 million Self-help books were sold in the United States last year. And Americans spent almost $14 billion on self-help and self-improvement in general. Like there's an entire industry built around helping you transform yourself into the person you want to become. But the reason like, people spend so much money, the reason that industry is so profitable, is like, that those books and those tools are like just the right amount of effective. That they help, they work just well enough to get you hooked, to make you feel like, oh yeah, I can maybe make progress. But they don't work so well that they make themselves obsolete. If one book or one system worked super well long term, there'd be no need to buy more books. And like the whole industry would drive itself to extinction. But like lasting change through those kind of books, those kind of tools, rarely happens. That's why we can be so prone to skepticism when we encounter people who claim to have changed. Like we see people all the time who claim to have changed and then eventually revert back to their own old state. And the same thing is true here. There's people see this man healed, but they aren't convinced that it will be a lasting transformation. And the important takeaway from this story is that the only way, the only way lasting transformation takes place is not only if the unpure spirit comes out of the person, but then crucially, if something else takes its place. 
Can this, this unclean spirit returns and finds the house empty, it will take up residence again. The real transformation only takes place when something else replaces the unclean spirit. And for real transformation to take place, the thing that needs to take its place is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit genuinely transforms us and equips us to live the life that God calls us to live. Like in our own self-effort, like we can sweep the house, we can put things to, in order for a while. We can repress our anger issues for a little while. We can overcome our addiction for a little while in our own self-effort. But eventually those sins will come back. We will fall back into them unless we have the Holy Spirit at work in us, equipping us and giving us power to overcome those things. When the Holy Spirit does that, that he make possible the third response to the work of Jesus. And that third response is discipleship. In verses 20 to 22, we read, But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. So to be a disciple, to choose discipleship in response to the work of Jesus, it means looking at all that Jesus has done, to look at his displays of power and to respond, not with antagonism, and not with skepticism, but with the belief that his power comes from the finger of God. And that Jesus has come to usher in the kingdom of God. And to believe that like, he is stronger than Satan. To believe that Jesus will ultimately defeat Satan. But to use the word of this passage, like, Satan has attempted to make this world his stronghold, right? and to guard it, and to keep it for himself. But God sent one who is stronger than Satan to overpower him. And the one who is stronger than Satan is Jesus. This, this whole book of Luke is a testimony to that fact, that, that, Satan, that Jesus is stronger than Satan. Way back to chapter 3, Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness and failed. And then throughout the book, Jesus has constantly shown his power over Satan by casting out demons. And at the end of the book, right, we see Jesus' a great victory over Satan. When he takes Satan's own plan to defeat God, Satan's own plan to kill Jesus, and he flips it on its head. Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He displays through that resurrection that Satan and sin and death have no power over him. And in verse 23, Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me. So this, this passage paints a, a picture of a battle over the fate of the world, like raging between God and Satan. Like that verse tells us, like there is no neutral ground. You can't choose to be Switzerland in this battle. There is no neutrality. Either you are with Jesus or you are against him. Either you respond with antagonism or skepticism, or you respond by following him and becoming his disciple. 
And if we're being honest sometimes, like we can look out at the world and there's this battle raging between God and Satan. It can feel like Satan's winning sometimes. We can see death and we can see sickness and pain among our loved ones and among the world in general. Again, it can us to wonder if Jesus really had the power to overcome those things. If Jesus really had the power that he says he does. And if he's really worth following. But the great promise of the Bible, that while the war still rages, the outcome is already decided. It was decided on the cross. When Jesus took the enemy's strongest attack and he rose victorious three days later. And the book of Revelation promises that, that there is coming a day when Jesus will return and he will complete his victory. There will be no more pain or suffering or death. There will be no more battles to be fought. But until that day comes, those of us who follow Jesus have clear instructions from Jesus. Verse 28 tells us, Jesus said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. When we choose discipleship in response to the work of Jesus, we choose the life of hearing God's word and obeying it. At the end of his time on earth, Jesus would give his followers what becomes known as the Great Commission. And he tells them, Go make disciples of all nations. What does making a disciple involve? He says, Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. You don't, you don't obey to become a disciple. You can't earn being a disciple by just obeying enough. You become a disciple by believing in Jesus, by believing His work truly were the work of God. You become a disciple by believing that Jesus died on the cross to forgive your sins. But once you've believed that, once you've become a disciple... Like our response to that incredible gift should be to obey the Word of God. One of the things that Word commands us to do is to partake in communion together. A communion like, serves as a tangible and physical way to remember what Jesus has done for us. The way to remember that, that, that Jesus is a real and physical person who really existed whose body was really broken on the cross, whose blood was really spilled in order to forgive our sins. Communion serves to remind us that the one we follow is worth following. So if you're, you're here and you've not decided to follow Jesus, and we're going to take communion in a minute, and they just know that there's nothing magical about this meal. Like, this is just a way for us who have chosen to follow Jesus to remind ourselves of what He has done. And so instead of partaking this with us, I would invite you, if you haven't followed Jesus, to, to consider following Him. To trust and believe that no matter how antagonistic or skeptical you've been in the past, that Jesus still invites you to follow Him. If you have questions about what that means, I'd be more than happy to talk to you about that. And for those of us who are here who are 
followers of Jesus. We all have these moments when we, we fail to hear the Word of God and obey as we should. And this taking this meal together is an opportunity to remind ourselves of God's grace towards us. How He forgives us by the work of Jesus for all the times we've failed. So before we partake together, I just want to give us a few moments of quiet reflection with God. Take some time to reflect on what He's done for us in Jesus, to, to confess any sins we may need to confess to Him. I'll give you a few moments, then we'll, I'll come back up and we will partake together. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Perfect. In the same way, after supper, he, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. Whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for the tangible reminder of the mighty and powerful work of Jesus. The way he came and he lived a sinless life and he declared his victory over Satan first by 
casting out demons and ultimately by defeating sin and death on the cross through his resurrection. God, as we go from here, would we not take for granted the mighty power of Jesus? We never cease to be amazed by the great things he has done for us. that he has done and would it compel us would it motivate us to live a life that honors you and glorifies you and is obedient to you praise God Jesus believing in the great and mighty and powerful works of Jesus, would you go hearing the word of God and obeying it? You are dismissed.